Good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Uh, using the new microphone that I picked up, I did end up getting a Yeti. And so far, still trying to experiment with the settings and working with it. Uh, one of the, the biggest issues I'm having with it is it picks it. It's, it's so good that even with the gain turned down and it's picking up stuff that my other microphone never would have picked up in a million years. It was funny. I was sitting here playing with it the other night and my son Roan and Billy were in the kitchen, which is a good eh, 25, 30 feet away. And they were kind of having a, a softer conversation, trying not to interrupt. And I could hear every word they were saying, which was funny until I realized that that's now going to be how sensitive this microphone is. So I've been trying to play with it. So I'm going to apologize in advance if the sound quality seems to take a step back back a bit um, with this new microphone. I know the whole hope is to improve the sound quality, but it's going to take me a little while to work with it. I'm no expert in this. Remember when I did the podcast or decided to do the podcast, I hopped on Amazon, bought the first, I think it was a $25 microphone that had good reviews and we were off and on our way. But um, right now I'm sitting in my living room. I have three dogs behind me, two of which are rather loud sleepers. So I'm trying to get this in before one of them snorts or makes a noise. And in some cases I may not be able to get it out. If I'm on a roll, I'm not going to stop it. So we joke on my videos that part of the charm of the videos is the fact there are always dogs clicking around and running around and kids in the background. And I'd rather not make that a staple of the podcast, but we'll see how it goes moving ahead. So again, a little more, a little stress involved this morning, trying to work with this mic and, and not catch things from outside. We had a bird tapping on a window just a minute ago. My neighbors who have the loudest trucks you'd ever want to hear and love parking them right outside my my window were out there earlier, so trying to get this whole thing done. So we'll see how it goes. So to kick this one off, we're going to take a little, uh, just a little while to talk about substrates. Uh, I know I've covered this topic before, but I think with this time of the year, it's springtime. A lot of people, you know, with the cold weather going, are buying more tarantulas. And we have people that are new into the hobby that don't know what to use for substrate. Or then there are the folks that have been in the hobby for a little while are starting to realize that they're putting together a rather large collection. A lot of adults maybe using, uh, doing some fossorial species. And now it's becoming very clear that buying all that cocoa fiber substrate is a bit expensive and sometimes takes away from money you can be spending on spiders. I, I know a lot of us go through that where first we figure out what we're going to use and everybody's like cocoa fiber, we start there. And then later on, as we get into the hobby, we get, I know with me, it was when I was doing the fossorial species. It was all of a sudden trying to fill those things up with that cocoa fiber, took quite a bit of cocoa fiber. Cocoa fiber costs money, and then it would get fluffy and, and dehydrate quickly. So I think a lot of folks go through a period where they start experimenting with the type of dirt they're going to use. Now, I've had a lot of folks asking me about the topsoil. I did use topsoil for years and had fine. I had no issues with it. The biggest issue I would get sometimes is that yellowish fungus that you get apparently in some type of mushroom or something. You get... I've heard people say it's deadly to tarantulas. I've seen no evidence of that whatsoever. What it is is annoying and unsightly, and it has this kind of sweet smell to it. And that was the biggest issue I was having. I also get that really bad with cocoa fiber quite a bit. And I started, basically what happened was I started using cocoa fiber, switched over, tried peat for a little while. I was getting mushrooms with the peat, then switched over to topsoil. That was probably the best I've had. I mean, I, I, every once in a while, I get one of those like little mushroom bursts or those little, you know, that yellowish fungus, but mostly the topsoil is what I had the best luck with. And then after I started using topsoil as my base, 
I realized my biggest issue with topsoil, especially for my moisture-dependent fossorial species, was the fact that it didn't particularly absorb water very well. You, I would do the make it rain, you know, use a flower pot type thing to pour a lot of water in, and it would puddle up and mud up on the top. The only way to kind of get the water down the bottom was to squirt it down the side between the substrate and the side of the enclosure and try to get the trickle down. But it could be kind of a pain to re-moisten a, an enclosure that started to dry out. So what I started doing is experimenting with mixing it with vermiculite a bit. I, I do like the characteristics of vermiculite. When you add that to soil, it lightens it up a little bit. It allows the water to percolate down through much more easily than just with straight topsoil. So for years, my mixture was vermiculite and well, topsoil and vermiculite. Depending on the species, I would add more vermiculite or less vermiculite. So if I was doing a dry species, it wasn't a big deal. I'd throw in a little vermiculite, but probably really wasn't needed. If it was a moisture-dependent species or one I knew I was going to need to keep the substrate moist at all times, I would add more vermiculite, and that worked great for me for a long time. So for people looking for a cheaper alternative, topsoil, or I've even heard people using potting soil works well. Now, some issues with that. Uh, the When you buy the topsoil or the potting soil, you want to look for organic, but uh, there's a caveat to that. When reading the label, you want to make sure that it says it doesn't use any natural or organic fertilizer, and those would be usually animal dung. You know, a lot of them will use chicken feces, uh, different animal, you know, dung, poo, and they add that to it for the actual natural fertilizer, and it's still considered organic, and you really don't want that stuff in your substrate. I mean, the problem is it's it's something that can still decompose. It's going to attract unwanted pests, so you really don't want that in there. So you want to make sure when it's organic, it doesn't have any inorganic or organic fertilizers added to it. No fertilizers whatsoever. For anybody that goes to Walmart and they have the bags that are really cheap and they say miracle Grow on them, do not use those because the miracle Grow company puts stuff into most of them. I think, the, I think anything with the miracle Grow label has fertilizers added to it. So you want to shy away from that stuff. Um, one I used for years that worked great was Scott's Topsoil. Uh, big 40-pound bags. You can usually get them for like a buck $2 dollars tops, I think, to Home Depot. And Lowe's, the downside to them is they were filled with a lot of debris. And back in the day, I used to strain out the debris so I'd have more dirt. And then as time went on, I was like, who cares? Like in the natural environment, there's going to be debris. What, what is the issue? So I used that well mixed with some vermiculite. I also use a brand called Timberline, which I think that one was only at, it's, I think it's only at Lowe's, but I could be wrong. Each place, Lowe's, Home Depot carries their own brands, but Timberline worked very well as well. Didn't have any issues with them. I have not used, I I've actually, I lied. I used potting soil once. I bought these little bags from Walmart that were like 50 cents each and they had perlite in them and it just, it wasn't my cup of tea, but I know people that use the potting soil and have good luck with it. So by all means, Use potting soil, topsoil. Now, the big drawback, and anybody that's followed my blog or any of my, I, I don't know if I actually, I've alluded to it in my YouTube channel, but I haven't really spent a lot of time explaining what happened. A couple of years ago, actually it was two winters ago, last winter, not the, this winter that we just uh, got through, but the one before, I got in a spot where I was getting a bunch of new slings in, I had some spiders I needed to rehouse, and I went to go to Home Depot and Lowe's to pick up some topsoil because I was running low, and they had already bundled up for the winter. They basically shrink wrap all their topsoil and they leave it outside, it freezes, and nobody's getting topsoil for you. And I, I don't know, maybe you can ask them to get some, but I'm always embarrassed, I'm a typical guy. So I was trying to figure out where I could get topsoil, and Billy's like, hey, we have an Agway farm supply that might have it. So she checked out Agway, and Agway did indeed still have their topsoil out where you could get bags. So I picked up two bags of the uh, 
Agway Topsoil. Brought it home, rehoused a bunch of stuff on it. Like, I had a bunch of slings that I'd, and vials that needed to get rehoused, so I rehoused a bunch of those. A bunch of my older specimens were rehoused on them. And then that began the winter where I started getting a bunch of mysterious deaths. And again, I've covered this ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go into it again. But long story short, there was something in those two bags of substrate that was killing off all my spiders, whether it be an herbicide, whether it be a pesticide, or the second bag that I got through... I basically got down to the bottom of it and noticed that there were a bunch of those little green fertilizer balls that you get that you put in soil that they use sometimes outdoors when they're like fertilizing large areas for grass or whatever. And I hadn't even noticed it before, but the bottom of the bag, the water that was draining out of it, because it was a, it was a pretty moist bag when I got it, all of the water had a greenish tinge to it. So again, I've had people tell me, hey, I've used that stuff before with my tarantulas and it was no problem. But my theory is that stuff was not supposed to be in it. That is obviously not organic. So God only knows what else was in it. So long story short, it, it, I have not used topsoil since then. I lost a lot of animals. I lost basically my entire uh, two colonies of assassin bugs that I had. I rehoused them all afterwards. I had a bunch of adults. They started dropping. I'm like, all right, they're getting old. Then the babies started dropping. I had a whole bunch of babies that I was keeping together. I lost all of them in a three-day period. It was, it was terrible, and I could not figure out what was going on for the longest time. So I spent a good at least a month, month and a half trying to figure out what was killing my animals, feeling really crummy about myself and about my keeping. It was making you know, doing videos difficult. So I, it was a really rough time. So I've been a little gun shy to use it again. Now, will I eventually go back to using topsoil or something like it? Probably. Yes. I mean, this is, I used it for years with no incident, but it's one of those deals where unfortunately what I realized is you won't know you have a bad bag until probably it's too late. And in which case you've already lost some animals. So for people that want to use it, I do tell them it's, I again, stick to those two because the only time I ever had an issue is when I switched to something else, that Agway garbage. But Scott's Timberline, see what else is out there. I know a lot of people do use topsoil. Um, I have people ask me all the time, can I take soil from outside? Can I go outside to an area that doesn't look like it's exposed to anything and take soil? Uh, that's not my thing. Now, I, I want to say I've talked to a lot of keepers, European keepers, and apparently that's very common. You go outside, you, you grab some dirt, and you throw it in there, and they haven't had problems with them. So I, I like to always explain when there's something I don't do and I have some worries about, but obviously people have done it and had good luck with it. But I've also heard of instances around here where in, in, in the States where people have used dirt from outside and had issues. One of the big issues is you never really know what has been sprayed around there. I know they, we had a huge mosquito problem a few years back and trucks came and sprayed for mosquitoes. Now, if I didn't know that, this some of the places they sprayed were kind of out of the way. It could be a place I would walk down to and go, all right, I'm just going to grab some dirt from this you know reclusive area. And it would have, you know, potentially pesticides in it. And Billy obviously works in pest control, so she tells me how a lot of this stuff works. She knows a lot more about it than I do. And a lot of times she'll tell me, oh, it wouldn't work that way in spiders. I don't want to take the chance. I don't want chemicals around my spiders. So that's one fear I always have as far as taking dirt from the outside. We have a wonderful patch of land across the street from us that is actually – we have this – our lot's broken in two because of where the road comes up. But across the street, there's some really rich soil because there's trees over there. Leaves fall off. Leaves rot. I would love to use it, but I don't know what kind of you know little microscopic animals are in it. I don't know what kind of mold's going to be in it. I've had people tell me that they take it and they bake it, and that kills everything that's in it. I've had other people say that when you do that, you just allow other things to – other undesirables to thrive and grow in that environment. So I haven't tried that myself yet. I've There was one point – 
where actually it was right around the time where I bought those two Agway bags. I probably would have been better off where I thought about going outside and just taking some dirt. It was cold and I figured digging was going to be difficult because the ground was frozen. Never actually used it. So for people that have used it, again, I always throw out what is my opinion. And in this case, it's not so much obviously people use it and have no issues. But if you have used it, you want to chime in on the Facebook page and tell, you know, reassure people that you have used it from outside and it works. That's fine. For me, I'm just not taking the chance. I don't know what my neighbors are spraying. I don't know what's being sprayed around here. I don't know what, what might be in the soil. So I don't do it. Now, as far as cocoa fiber goes, easily acquired. All pet stores sell it. You can get the bricks. For relatively cheap, uh, cheap, I go on Amazon and when I was using – after the whole topsoil incident, I switched back to cocoa fiber. It was very quickly reminded why I, this stuff kind of annoys me. And again, people that use cocoa fiber, I'm not bashing you and I, I understand – it comes down to everybody's got their own preference. So when people come to me and they see one of my videos and they comment, oh, you don't like cocoa fiber or you, cocoa fiber is bad, I never say cocoa fiber is bad. Say, no, a lot of people use cocoa fiber. I just ended up moving away from it. Then I moved back to it. And the bricks, I get these big 10 to 11 pound bricks on Amazon. And they're usually, if you get them off season, you can pick them up sometimes for like 13, 14 bucks. I've gotten them as cheap as that. And you get a lot of stuff. I have this huge Sterilite bin, probably, I don't know, two and a half feet by a foot and a half wide by maybe a foot and a half deep or so. And it easily overflows that with all of the cocoa fiber you get from it. So after the terrible incident with the topsoil, I moved away from topsoil, started buying those big things. You just have to prep ahead of time. And I think that's one of the issues I sometimes have with the cocoa fiber is the fact that if you're buying the bricks, you need time to rehydrate and then you need time to dry out substrate that you want to use for creatures that don't need creatures. Where did that come from? For specimens that don't need the high moisture content in the soil. So what I will usually do is I will go out on a warm Saturday when impossible rehydrate one of these bricks in that big sterilite thing so it's all broken up and moist and then what i usually do is have a bunch of smaller more shallow sterilite containers i fill those out leave them outside in the sun to kind of bake and dry out because sometimes you need the, the moist stuff it's great when you need moist substrate you know the stuff obviously starts off moist we need dry substrate it can be kind of a pain in the tuchus to dry it out you can also put it in the oven on low heat for a while you leave the oven cracked open a little bit and it basically it takes longer than i've read online tutorials with like oh put it in for 20 minutes i've never had it work in 20 minutes it's, it takes quite a while you got to kind of really bake the stuff out but that can get the moisture out as well but cocoa fiber obviously been used forever very you know versatile substrate for a lot of different things works great for spiders my biggest issue was when i started doing the moisture dependent fossorial species it would evaporate very very quickly that was my biggest concern with it and I've also found that when you put it in moist, once the moisture evaporates out of it, it tends to settle a great deal. Now, I've had a lot of people worried that it doesn't hold burrows. It will because the spider will web up the inside of the burrow to hold it together. I haven't had many instances where I've seen it collapse on anything. I have a rather large H. gigas that is on a mixture of vermiculite and cocoa fiber right now. And she's got a, a myriad of tunnels through the cocoa fiber and they're holding their shape. And again, it's because they will web up inside those. So don't worry about it collapsing. If it did, gosh forbid, it did collapse on, they can easily dig their way out and re-sculpt it. So that really isn't a big concern for me. So again, a good substrate, just it can become a little pricey after a while. It can be a little inconvenient where if you know it's wintertime, you're trying to rehydrate this stuff and you get one of those big bricks because you're trying to save some money, which makes sense. And then trying to rehydrate in your garage where it's cold, it just can be kind of a pain. So that was one of the reasons I originally switched from that to the topsoil. 
Now, the other thing that people use a lot, and I've used before, and I will explain why I stopped using it for a little while, but I may get back to it in the future, is peat is, a lot of people swear by peat. Uh, great, you know, cheap substrate. You can buy it in these big bales that um, will fill a lot of enclosures. You can mix it with other things. You can mix it with dirt. You can mix it with cocoa fiber. You can mix it with vermiculite. You can mix all of them together. That's something that should be said. If, for people that are really trying to find that correct mix of substrate, all of these with some fine sand. People sometimes work in some sphagnum moss. They grind up sphagnum moss or put it in a blender and they put sphagnum moss in it, which allows it charcoal or things you really want to get kinky with this stuff. There's a lot of things you can add to it and play with. So feel free to experiment. There's one, what works for one person might not work for another, but Pete, I, I bought a huge bale of this. My issue was, I don't know what the deal was. I started using it because I was using cocoa fiber and I was getting those stupid yellow mushroom fungus things. And people were like, oh, use the peat. It's it's extra acidic. So it prevents a lot of the mold and fungus you'd get. Well, the bag I got, I don't know where they took it from, but as soon as that substrate was moistened, I got mushrooms. And not the yellow, they were all kinds of mushrooms. Were, these were these mutant mushrooms where I'd come in in the morning, I'd be getting dressed, I'd look over and be like, oh, a little mushroom in there. What's that? And, it, and the thing's like a half inch tall, maybe. And I come home from work like eight hours later and the thing's literally bent over the top of enclosure. It's about four inches around. It was freaky. I think I mentioned these before. I don't know what these things are made of, but I swear you can actually watch them grow. And it kind of weirded me out because, like, again, I don't know a lot about plants. That's not my area of expertise. But the idea that a plant can go from about a half inch to, like, four inches, and I'm not even really exaggerating that much here. They really grow fast. Kind of weirded me out. So we, we stopped using peat for a little while after that. But um, I, I got to get back to it. I got to get a, another bag of it and try it out. And I, a lot of people swear by it. One of the good things about peat is it, it takes a little bit to absorb the water, but once the water's in there, it locks it in. So people that use it for moisture-dependent species swear by the fact that it retains moisture very, very well. Uh, the other issue I have with it that can be just an annoyance, it's not a huge deal, it's not a deal breaker, but it's very, very dusty when it first starts out. When you get a bale of it, it's packed really tight. And this, like, if you go to pour this into a an enclosure, the dust gets all over the sides. You have to go in after packing it down, moistening it, and kind of clean off the sides of the aquarium or the sterilite box, whatever you're using, because it's going to be covered with this dust. So that's something like, as far as using it for dry species, a little iffy there. But again, a lot of people use it. They swear by it. It's obviously like any type of substrate. It's got its own qualities and good qualities and bad qualities. So again, something else you can consider. And then back to my original point that you can go ahead and mix just about anything. It, it, all of these things, I just spoke to somebody that uses peat, topsoil, uh, what was it? Uh, sand, fine sand, and some cocoa fiber, and they mix it all up together, and that's how they get their substrate, and they love it. So there you go. And and I will say that one of the things that kind of comes with the hobby, once you get the hang of the, the actual spider maintenance part, is kind of, you know, again, playing with different types of enclosures and playing with the types of substrate you can use. Now, uh, right now, I am actually using BioDude's Terra Arania substrate. I uh, was sent a bunch from him to kind of do a review on and set up some bioactive enclosures. Since then, I've picked up, I believe, six more bags and been transferring a, transferring a lot of my guys over to that. I love the stuff so far. The only drawback I've found or the only issue I found is that, like, 
the topsoil that I used back in the day. When you first go to add the water, it tends to puddle up on the top. However, give it a little time, it seeps down in and seems to seep right down to the bottom, which allows you to keep those bottom layers moist. And that's what you want with the moisture-dependent species while allowing the top to dry up a bit so you're not encouraging growth of nasty things. So I'm really liking it. Now, is it going to be too expensive for some people? Probably. And again, I'm not here to tell you how to spend your money. I'm not here to guilt people. Uh, me talking about a product that I enjoy is just me telling people this is out there and feel free to do your research and decide whether it works for you. It's not like you have to use this and I don't want to... I'd feel bad people go out there like, Tom, use it. I have to use it. No, no, no. I've gone through a lot of different things and I still have a lot of different things going on in my transfer room, but it's just something I'm enjoying using now. Especially, I'm doing a lot of the bioactives as well and the substrate is made specifically for that, but I've also found it's working really well in my sling enclosures. I've got a couple juveniles on it now and really liking the stuff. So that's what I'm using at the moment, but I will get back to probably at some point mixing my own and playing with some stuff there because I just enjoy it. I like working with dirt and now that I'm doing the bioactives, I've talked to some people that have told me that you know it's it's fun sometimes to make your own bioactive mix so right now though absolutely loving that substrate it's convenient for me and i don't mind spending i'm at a point right now where my collection i'm not adding a lot to it i haven't added anything to my collection now i think in like eight months and that's i think the longest time i've gone since getting into the hobby without adding anything but i'm kind of enjoying what i have i'm enjoying it's like I've entered a different stage now where it's not all about let me acquire new species, which don't get me wrong. I've got my eyes set on a lot of them. I'll be picking some more up, you know, probably in the next couple of months. But more, a lot of mine have become adults. And like, what's the next step? Do we keep them in these sterilite containers? Which, again, nothing wrong with that. And I've done it for years. But I'm to a point where I want to start doing something a little bit more with them. So this has opened up a new aspect of the hobby with the whole bioactive and everything. So for me, I don't mind... I'm not spending as much money on the actual spiders, so I don't mind taking that money and moving it over towards spending more money on enclosures and substrates. So I get that for some people spending, you know, $30 on what would be like 24 quarts of substrate is ridiculous. Totally get it. I, I'm frugal myself. I understand. However, for people that are looking for something different or maybe maybe you want to set up a bioactive enclosure, maybe you just have a, want to try something for a bunch of juveniles, you know, start off small, definitely check it out. It's, I, I think it's worth it with the free shipping with the $30. I think it's, I want to say it's twenty nine ninety nine uh, with the shipping, which is a pretty good deal. It's expensive, yes, but I like the way it performs so far, and I will be keeping people updated on that. So again, don't feel the need to go out and blow much money right now. Use whatever you're using. Use some of the cheaper alternatives I used before. I'm just mentioning it because that's what I'm using now, and I want to keep people updated as to what I'm doing. So again, if you're just getting into the hobby... Many different things you can use for substrate. For a lot of people, it's just easier to start off with the cocoa fiber. I think a lot of us do, especially those that, you know, just getting into it. It's, you know, it's, it can be, it's inexpensive in smaller quantities and convenient. Uh, we also use the peat and the topsoil or potting soil will work great. You're going to want to, I personally find you're going to want to mix it with a little vermiculite just to make it, especially with sling enclosures. If you've got them in something really teeny tiny and you pack some dirt in there, the water does not soak down through very well. So you want something that's going to allow that water to kind of percolate down through and go to the bottom layers, not just puddle up on the top. So any of these things will work. And if you're looking, if you're somebody that's been using the cocoa fiber and you're like, yeah, I'm sick of spending all this money. I'm sick of rehydrating it. Definitely give the topsoil a look. Definitely give peat. If you're afraid of the topsoil, peat is another thing. Give that a look. Again, you might want to mix it with something. You've got to cut it down with a little vermiculite or something else or any combination of those work great. All right, moving on to our next topic, Therophosa blondi or blondi. I, I, I always say blondi and it, it's become like a running joke on my videos and such. Where people will come up. I counted the other day. I have a uh, brachypelma. 
Bomi or Bami. And during my last video where I mentioned that name, I basically threw out there, I don't know how it's pronounced. I've been told a, a myriad of different ways to pronounce it. I don't even care anymore. And I counted last count. I believe there were 12 different pronunciations, suggested pronunciations. Everybody saying theirs was correct. So there you go. So whichever you call it, I think Blondie makes most sense to me, but I've had some people cringe when I say that. Love the species. Again, I picked them up after keeping Thurifosostermi, which is it's very, 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 can't stress enough, very similar cousin for years, love the big spiders. I know some people don't like them. And for folks who are looking to get something a little easier, they want that big spider, but they want something that's a little more hardy. Theraphosa sturmi have a reputation for being much more hardy and a lot more hardy than we sometimes give them credit for as far as the big spiders. Because the big issue with the Theraphosa species is their moisture dependency. For years, if you read anything about these guys, it was huge emphasis put on the fact that they need it moist this led to sometimes stuffy enclosures where people would put them in aquariums cover the top completely pour in a bunch of water and they get these fetid nasty conditions inside and i think that's what's probably killed a lot of them off but it's not a rumor i mean they do require a great deal of moisture the blondie supposedly more than the sturmy however speaking about the sturmy i've talked to many people over the years that actually keep them quite dry when they get older uh, I have not tried this myself. I'm not encouraging people to try it their, uh, themselves. However, it, it should be mentioned more than one person I've talked to says they keep them in something with mostly dry substrate and a big water dish and that they do perfectly fine like that. And that flies in the face of what we thought about these guys for years because for years, if you read the care sheets, they all had to be kept at high temperatures, super high temperatures. So people were like trying to heat them up to around 80, 85 and lots of moisture. I found with mine, they will tolerate when things dry out a little bit as long as they have. I give mine usually two big water dishes in there. So there's always moisture in the air. I keep part of the substrate moist at all times. Every once in a while, it dries out a little bit, but I, it's usually not for very long because I'm checking on them constantly. And um, that's for the Sturmy. For my Blondie, I have not let them dry out at all. And I picked both of these up. I got them from Fear Not Tarantulas, from Tanya Fear Not Tarantulas, and they were like slings an inch and a quarter maybe inch right around an inch and a quarter mark originally had them in containers that were about seven by three by three these little long like they look like uh, model car containers or something pretty good size because keep in mind if you get these guys they are ridiculously fast growers either sturmy or blondie i'm concentrating on blondie for this one but it's pretty interchangeable as far as the care they grow very, very quickly. So, you know, when people tell you you start off in a 16-ounce deli cup, don't even bother starting off in a 16-ounce deli cup with one of these. I did that with my first Sturmies. I put them in a 16-ounce deli cup, and they outgrew that deli cup within like a mole. So don't bother with the deli cup. Get them something a little bit bigger, something maybe around a quart even. The slings are pretty good size to start off. They will burrow, and that's your advantage because that's what makes it easy to keep them moist. When you add the substrate, I do encourage you to have this come right off the substrate discussion. This is one of the species that I started mixing things a lot more for. This is where I mixed whatever I was using at the time. It was topsoil with a good deal of vermiculite. And when we talked about which proportions we use, I said some species I use less, some I use more. With the Sturmy, I used a lot of vermiculite. It was probably closer to 60-40, 60% of these topsoil. And then the vermiculite, it holds together well. It absorbs water very, very well and quickly, which is what you want. And as the top levels dry off, you can usually see looking through the side of the enclosure that the bottom levers are moist, and that's what you want because this spider is going to dig, it's going to burrow, it's going to create itself a nice little burrow in that moist substrate, and that's going to keep it well hydrated. I give them water dishes, all my slings uh, get water dishes, and it's, there's no exception, obviously, with the T Blondie. They get water dishes right off the bat. 
And I usually start them off with a cork bark hide where I make a little starter burrow underneath because you want to encourage that burrowing and some sphagnum around the area. Some New Zealand sphagnum moss or regular sphagnum moss works great. You sprinkle around the area and that's another thing that will help retain moisture when you moisten it down. Now my guys, even the slings, voracious eaters, my slings were taken down medium crickets, no problem. They are. I found that the sturmies... Without exception, the ones I've raised have had no problem taking down prey on the larger size. They are voracious eaters. They move super fast. This is something I don't see mentioned a lot in care guides or care information for the Theraphosa species. I think everybody pictures them in their large, you know, 9, 10-inch lumbering forms, but the slings are quick. One of the fastest species I've dealt with, I've seen some of them come out of a burrow 7 inches, grab a prey at them, and back in the burrow before I even have a chance to flinch. Very fast and something people need to be aware of, and they can be a little bit skittish of that size. So although they would rather, much rather retreat to a burrow than stand off against you, I could see one getting kind of loopy and running out of the enclosure, and then you, you're chasing a spider around. So just something to be aware of if you, you know, pick up one of these guys, the slings are fast. So again, start them off. So deep moist substrate, so a couple inches of moist substrate for a sling. I've had no problem with these guys burying themselves and not coming back up. When they do cover up the entrances to their burrows, assume that they're in pre-molt. I've had them, you know, I've had one of them, a male that buried himself at six inches and didn't come up for several months and he was molting. So something to keep in mind, they will burrow. Most of them outgrow it once they start putting on that hulking size, but they will, I've, all of them will continue to use a hide. I've found that all of them will, at one point when you open up the enclosure, usually go and try to hide on, get out of your line of sight. When you see one, they find them in the wild. They're usually in burrows, so they definitely will use them. However, they're also very visible, so that's something to keep in mind. My female snurmy, my male snurmy, they're always out in the open, and my two blondie right now have burrows, but I catch them out in the open all the time. So they are a very visible spider, which is good because you want to see them because they're huge and amazing. But as far as eating is concerned, as slings, I fed mine more of. I fed mine usually twice a week or so because with my moisture-dependent species, I want to make sure I'm checking on them more often as a dog snores in the background but you could get away with once a week with larger meals and if you find they're taking huge meals and these guys will take down a lot of food that's something this is one of the species that you heard talk about in the day or you know kind of an urban legend that they could overeat and i again i don't quite believe in the myth of tarantulas being able to overeat generally speaking they wouldn't they're not like humans they're not going to sit there and put on a bunch of extra weight they hit a certain point where their bodies tell them they're they're done and then they go into primal i think the problem is with Larger specimens, I've heard that if they get too, quote unquote, obese, they could have difficulties molting. I don't know how much proof there is of that. It seems a little suspect to me because these guys are big, big spiders. They will eat a lot. My adult Sturmies were eating adult Madagascar hissing cockroaches, no problem, like taking them down like nothing, and once a week or so. And it took them quite a while to fatten up after molts, so you want to feed them the bigger meals. But as far as slings, twice a week's fine. Juveniles, they're easy, they will easily start eating multiple large crickets once they hit that juvenile stage. These guys put on, not only do they melt, uh, melt, molt pretty frequently, but they put on a great deal of size with each molt. I once had a comparison of molts from uh, similar aged or uh, formictopus species, pamphibedia species, and my late, uh, lazy adora species, that's right, and a sturmy. And to watch how quickly the sturmy grew compared to these other what are considered to be fast growers was amazing. I mean, they put on a, a lot of size. So something to think about when getting one of these guys, you're going to be probably doing more rehousings 
then you, well, you could be doing more rehousings than you normally do for another species because of the fact they grow so quickly. Or what a lot of people will do is once they hit that four inch mark, start putting them into something more akin to an adult enclosure. And these are guys that they, they can use some room. So you want something that's going to give me, you know, a 10 gallon minimum, but I, I 10 gallons almost a little smaller. I right now have my, male snurmy in an enclosure that's got the floor space. It's it's shorter. It's like seven inches deep, but the actual floor space of it is closer to like a 15 gallon aquarium. I am considering bioactive enclosures for one of my bodies or both of my bodies when they get older at adult size, in which case I'll be looking at something probably 15 gallons long or around there. So do you need to keep in mind, these aren't ones that are really going to readily fit in one of those, you know, sterilite larger shoe boxes when they get older. You're going to need some space for them. That was something I always like. Right now, I have two blondies, and I already have space set aside for when they're adults because I know I'm going to need it. Because this is something when they hit a certain size and you have limited room for your collection, you're you're going to have to find a lot of room to correctly house these guys as adults. But the water thing, the trick I find is every time you feed them, check that water level, depending on the substrates you're using or the enclosures you're using, something clear. I like to use something clear with these guys because I do like to watch the water level. You can tell the darker substrate on the bottom is the moist stuff and you want to make sure there's a good band of moist substrate on the bottom. The top can dry out a bit and I think that's where a lot of people tend to panic. They open up an enclosure and like, oh my gosh, all the substrate in the top is dry. That's not the important stuff. You want them, they're going to burrow. You want to make sure that bottom level stay moist. So even if the top looks dry, if you look down and you have, you know, say six inches of substrate and the top inch is dry, that's totally cool as long as the bottom five are kind of moist. What you'll see is that line, that dark line of moist substrate will start creeping lower and lower and lower and when it gets to a certain point where it looks a little too low that's when you want to make it rain add some water to it spray it all over the place get nice and wet allow it to dry out again in between the top and that's what i do right now my two blondie are in one of those big sterilite shoe boxes and each of them's in their own box and they've got the cocoa fiber mixed with vermiculite because and i did lose one of them one of the I, i had a replacement but one of the first two i got i it outgrew its enclosure i put it on that substrate and of course, it was dead within a couple months. So after that was when I switched over to the cocoa fiber. So when I rehoused them this time, I used the cocoa fiber vermiculite mix, which is working well. But just keep in mind, if you use the cocoa fiber, it does evaporate extra fast compared to like topsoil or peat. So you really need to keep on it, which is one of the reasons I feed the sling so often. Then when I got to be juveniles, again, into the sterilite containers, gave them about three inches or so of substrate with starter burrows and a piece of cork bark for a hide. Same thing, put the sphagnum moss all around much larger water dish this time around and both of them ended up you know fattening up quickly and then burying themselves when they went into pre-molt so that is something to expect with these guys when you're doing the theraphosis species and i found that my sturmy did the same thing that when they go into pre-molt when they're smaller they usually end up burying themselves but again when speaking about the fast growth rate these guys will put on a ton of size and you can expect to start with a sling and within a year, you're looking at a five to six inch spider, depending on conditions. Again, warmer, if you have warmer temperatures, you're going to get faster growth rate. I kept mine in the 70s, which again, totally busting that myth that they had to be kept in the 80s. And I still got great growth out of them, out of both the Sturmy and the Blondie are on target to be about, probably about five and a half, six inches by the time. Well, actually right now, they're probably about four and a half. I haven't seen them. Yet, one of them already molted, I know, because it threw its molt out, and the molt was about four and a half inches. So I'm guessing it's probably about five, five and a half inches now at least. I'm trying, still trying to get a good look at her. I'm hoping I can catch her out and, and get an actual measurement. But 
So they're doing well, growing great, and expect that. I mean, one thing you want to think about, too, is if you're the type of person that usually uses crickets as feeders or smaller roaches, these guys will out, they kind of outgrow crickets. They get so large that the crickets are even large crickets are so small for them that you got to drop in. I think one time I dropped in like 12 for one of my nine inch Sturmy and they were trying to scoop them all up and make like a big old burrito webbing them all together. And it's fun to watch and everything, but it's kind of not, I don't know. It's there's better stuff out there to use. So I would, if you're thinking of getting either, either the Sturmy or the Blondie, start thinking about possibly getting some dubia and keeping them on hand the large dubia work great and again i've had one take three large dubia down no problem i have the hissing cockroaches again those aren't going to be a great you know that isn't going to work for everybody i have a lot of animals to feed so i have a lot of different roaches and feeders on hand so they work for me but that's something to think about if you buy them unfortunately if you try to go buy one at the pet store you're probably getting ones they're trying to sell as pets and they're going to cost you twice as much or i've seen petco sells some of the smaller uh, hissing cockroaches and they're like three dollars three of them for like 10 bucks which is ridiculous um, i do not feed mine vertebrates i don't feed my mice or lizards or anything of that nature it's not my cup of tea i know some people do that but uh, if anything just the bolus is left behind is just nasty and uh, i don't really need that but i i have heard people that fed frozen mice to them and whatnot just be careful because again two things to be wary of with these guys and i haven't found that mine are particularly aggressive or I hate that word defensive we'll say but the fangs are huge the fangs i believe can go up to three quarters of an inch a half an inch to three quarters of an inch they can rip through you know hard packed dirt and everything so a bite by one of those the heck with the venom the bite from one of those an adult would be a nightmare as far as actual tendon damage nerve damage things it, it, the physical damage it would do to you would be far outweigh any venom that they could produce and then the other thing is the hairs the hairs are known to be notoriously bad they will, when they go to molt, before they flip, kick all the hairs like this huge I, – I, the first time it happened to me, I thought the thing was covered with mold. It, it totally freaked me out. They kick all their hair off and basically roll in it as a defense because if they're in the wild and they're flipping over to molt and an animal finds them, they're an easy target to be devoured, but they cover themselves with these hairs. So anything that comes around sniffing is going to get a nose full of those highly nasty, irritating hairs. I've gotten a couple on me, very just a little bit, and it burned. It was nasty. I can't imagine getting a whole like handful or even a face full. And so definitely a species. You want to wear long sleeves and gloves when working with, especially when doing maintenance, because those hairs can be in the substrate. You don't even know they're there. You go to clean. I, usually the way I get caught is I grab the water dish out with my bare hand, go to wash it off, go to put it back in a few minutes later. My hand's burning. I realize they're on the water dish. So just assume those little irritating, urticating hairs are everywhere when you're handling with it and make sure that you have proper protection on it. At least gloves, long sleeves, don't make the mistake I've done before where I do a lot of work on my dinner table and we have a fan above the table and sometimes I forget to turn it off and you open that enclosure, you don't even see it, the fan stirs up the hairs, next thing you know it, your arms are all itchy, you're like, what happened? Nothing kicked. It's because it's in the substrate. So definitely keep an eye on the hairs. I've never had a threat pose from any of mine. Most people I talk to seem to, they find theirs are kind of gentle giants, but I have heard situations where they've gotten threat poses and, and struck, and you don't want to get bit by anything like that. But overall, they're pretty laid back. My males, I've had two males, Sturmies, those would just sit. You'd open the enclosure, they'd just sit there. They don't do anything like pet holes. Sometimes they'll do the little stress pose, which makes me feel terrible because like, hey, it's easy, guy. I'm not going to hurt you. Um, my female Sturmie that unfortunately passed away after her last molt, she was pushing nine and a half, ten inches. Uh, that one still breaks my heart. I absolutely love that spider. 
but she was very laid back. You'd open the enclosure, she'd be sitting there, good feeding response, but not overly wound up or not overly overly skittish, which I thought was great. And again, I know these are a spider that a lot of people hear about the moisture requirements and want to immediately jump into some type of bioactive enclosure. I would caution against that because A, you're going to be rehousing them a bit when they're smaller. They're going to put on size. You're going to have a couple... You don't want to drop them in their adult enclosure right off the bat. And you want to make sure that they, in those early stages where they're, you know, a little less resilient, a little less hardy, that you're keeping those conditions well. That's why I kind of like the Sterilite containers. You do want to make sure you ventilate things well. And I want to make that very, very clear. A lot of people here are moisture dependent and they think, oh, I'm going to poke three holes in a Sterilite box, drop a bunch of water in there, and it's going to be fine. No, you're going to have a Petri dish for of bad bacteria and fungi and mold and things of that nature. You want to avoid that. You need good ventilation, which means you're going to need to check the enclosures a little bit more often to make sure that they stay adequately hydrated. And personally, I find that early on, you're going to have plenty of time to get the spider into something that looks amazing. You can always do the bioactive enclosure once it hits, you know, five, six inches, you move it into its adult home, you give it the beautiful enclosure. But I always encourage people when they're smaller, take the time to just make sure the conditions are right. And I found that Sterilite containers, because of the fact that you can put as many holes in them as you want, you can put vents in them, you can do whatever. They're very adaptable for enclosures. You can get the conditions just right. Make sure you have enough cross ventilation in there, but make sure that it also stays moist. It makes it a lot easier in an enclosure like like that. If you dump them immediately into a 10-gallon aquarium, now you're playing with the fact that you're not going to have a lot of vent- cross-ventilation. You have to cover the top with probably plexiglass, and it just makes things a little more difficult, in my opinion, to keep them. I'm sure somebody's going to chime in and go, I kept mine in slings like that. I, if you know what you're doing, obviously jump to whatever you need to do, but for people that are just getting into keeping the Theraphosa species, I usually encourage them, don't worry about what the enclosure looks like at first. Make sure your enclosure is set up properly. Make sure that, you know, when you set it up, I tested mine out beforehand to make sure my substrate mix was holding on to moisture well. I made sure it wasn't evaporating too quickly. I made sure it wasn't getting mold. And then I got my spider and put in. So just something to think about. Those first couple houses that it has, the first couple containers or enclosures, Make sure you got the spider's needs, you know, you put those in the forefront, you make those paramount, and then you can start playing with the aesthetics of it later on once it puts on some size. When you get it out of that, you know, fragile sling period and fragile juvenile period into like a robust young adult, then you start playing around with stuff. But again, that that would be my advice for him. So again, I love them. I know some people don't particularly like them. The blondies, there's not much difference between the blondies and Sturmy. I want to make that very, very clear. People, I I love when people come on like, oh, you have a Sturmy, you got to get the real one. It's bull. They're literally almost identical in every respect. The big difference, the big huge difference is the hairs on the knees of the blondie that the Sturmy doesn't have. I mean, a couple other differences, but that's, you know, physically or speaking by just looking at them, that's the difference that everybody's talking about. And similar sizes, I've heard people say Sturmies are thicker. I've heard people say the Blondies are thicker. I've heard people say that Sturmies are heavier. I've heard people say that Blondies are heavier. Somebody contacted me recently and told me that they have, uh, there was a 14-inch uh, Blondie somewhere. And I, I don't know, I, I apophysis and I don't have that, so I can't talk about it right now. It's one I need to get. Possibly. I could see it happening with that. They get huge. The one that's not talked about, but they actually supposedly get a larger leg span than the Sturmy or Blondie. But as far as Blondie and Sturmy concerned, you can look to have about a 10-inch, 11-inch spider. I think is probably very realistic. It's a gorgeous animal. They're just tanks as far as spiders are concerned. And they're great conversation pieces when you have people over. When they go, oh, you have tarantulas? And then you whip that one out. Oh, boy, does that get a reaction. So great, guys. Just make sure you keep them moist. Make sure you give them good ventilation. Um, 
Water dish is imperative, I think, with these guys. Nice fresh water. Sometimes, too, you get a larger specimen, stick two in there. I stick two in. I stick one closer to the actual spider where its den is. I stick one on the other side because I have noticed they won't venture out too, too far. And this is a species I will try a bioactive with. I'm absolutely 100% doing a bioactive with. So we'll get to that hopefully sometime in the future. But they're not quite there yet. I am hoping I got to do some feeding after this. And I'm going to feed the one that just molted who hasn't come out of her burrow yet. Threw her, threw her molt out. She hasn't been out yet, so I'm hoping to see how big she is. I can't wait. So awesome animals. I will be doing updates on mine in the future, but just some things to think about if you're looking at them. The size is impressive. They grow quickly. Just be careful of those hairs. Keep your hands away from them. Understand that the slings are very, very fast. That's something I, I can't repeat enough. And just enjoy them. They really are amazing animals. So that'll about do it for this episode. Hopefully this the sound doesn't come out too crummy on this. I'm, again, I'm still working with it, and I apologize to people. It's going to take me a little while. I'm not a professional sound person, and uh, time's been kind of tough to come by lately, so my time to sit down and experiment. This podcast right now, right now we're clocking in at 43. What about we'll say 44 minutes or so I started this an hour and a half ago so between the interruptions with dogs neighbors coming by uh, me coughing in the middle of it things of that nature it takes time to get these things done so hopefully I'll get better at it in the future I'm going to play around with this one more this weekend and try to work with the levels some more to make it sound better but uh, again I'm trying so I hope you guys appreciate it so anyway as always feel free to check out my website tomsbigspiders.com check out my YouTube channel Tom's Big Spiders you can look up Tom Moran I'm hopefully getting another video up today got one up last week doing more of the bioactive stuff absolutely loving that and as always thanks so much for listening and i'll catch you guys next time